Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. We all carry pieces of our past with us. Sometimes they're shiny and worthy as new half crowns in our pockets. Sometimes they're bits of lint or scraps of paper shredded beyond use. Plenty of my memories carry a stab of regret or a burn of shame with them. And honestly, there are times when I wonder how we all bloody well live with the fool things we've done. This is GP Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Karen Oden about Under a Veiled Moon, the second novel in her Inspector Coravan historical mystery series. Michael Coravan is filled with regret at mistakes he's made over the course of his young life because 13 years before, at age 19, he was told that he'd better run and hide or he'd be killed. Now it's 1878. He's Inspector Coravan with the Metropolitan Police and he's filled with regrets. A horrific accident occurs on the Thames River, and the newspapers quickly point to Irish immigrants as the most likely suspects. But Inspector Coravan doesn't believe in jumping to conclusions. He's going to accumulate evidence and listen to what everyone has to say before he arrests anyone. He doesn't realize what he's up against until more people, including one whom he loves, have died. Hi, Karen. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. I'm very excited to be talking to you again about your second Michael Coravan, Inspector Coravan novel. And my first question is, why wasn't there a list of passengers on the Princess Alice so they'd know who was missing after the shipwreck? (laughs) I know that's the thing that scared everyone the most. But these, the Princess Alice is one of a small fleet of steamships that went up and down the Thames. And I'll be honest, until I found out about this disaster, I didn't even know there were steamships on the Thames. I thought of that as more of a Mississippi River sort of thing. But mm-hmm. there was a group of them, and and they were kind of like our hop-on, hop-off-again buses. So you could, for two shillings, you could hop on at London Bridge onto one of the steamships and ride for a while, and then you'd hop off and have a picnic or go for a promenade or something, and and then hop back onto the next one. And they just went sort of down the Thames all the way to North Sea, and they'd turn around and come back. And so, but hop on, hop off. I mean, they didn't have a passenger manifest. So on the night of September 3rd, no, nobody, nobody knows who exactly is on the boat. Right. September. That was September third, seventeen, eighteen seventy. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they didn't pay with credit cards. No. So there was really no way. No, <sighs> and nobody had their cell phones with them, of course, in eighteen seventy eight. So it wasn't like anybody could track them on what is that? Um, where's your family or who's your friends right. or whatever that, that whatever that program it is. Just, <laughs> it mm-hmm. was just so devastating. Yeah. And then, can you address the situation, the shocking situation of newspapers spreading lies and gossip? It's, it's, it's just completely unthinkable, or maybe it isn't. Can you address it? 
Yes. So when, uh, when the book begins, uh, Inspector Corvin is has been reassigned from Scotland Yard to Wapping River Police, which is about six miles east on the Thames. And so uh, the night of September 3rd, the this terrible steamship disaster happens. And by the next day, the newspapers have begun to sort of jump on it and make, making surmises and uh, expressing, you know, profound regret over the state of nautical laws, which allow these terrible things to happen. And, and you know, there's all this furor that kind of comes into being around, around this disaster. Um, and interestingly, like, I think it was a, like two days, two or three days before, there had been this terrible train wreck that um, was also bringing people back from the North Sea area uh, back into London. And so there was all this furor around that too, although those were more common. I mean, by 1878, you'd had a whole bunch of them. So between these two things, the newspapers really, uh, you know, so were sort of up in arms. This is true history. But, you know, one of the things about London is at that point, they had almost a thousand newspapers. Now, some of them were very small and provincial, and some of them were big, like the Times and the Daily Mail. But with all these newspapers proliferating, people had all different kinds of stories that they were putting out there. And one of them fell in line with sort of the prevailing prejudice of the day against the Irish, which was that the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which was a sort of a political almost organization that was trying to get home rule back for Ireland, that they were violent. Um, in 1867, they had set off a bomb in London that had hurt 150 people and I think killed 20 or something like that. Anyway, so so it was kind of understood that the IRB could be violent and that this could be, uh, you know, another one of their um, ploys for getting attention for their cause. Hmm. Why... Inspector Michael Coravan, as a just as a person, he feels guilty that it's been over a month since he saw the boils. Can you explain that relationship? Why is he why is he feeling guilty? Well, he was born and raised. He was born in Ireland, and his parents came over during the potato famine during the 1840s, late 40s, over to Liverpool and then down to London. And his father was a silversmith. But because he's Irish, he can't get uh, legitimate work. So he does what a lot of Irish did and sort of turned his trade sideways and applied his skills in another direction. He became a counterfeiter. And when Michael is three, uh, the, the dangerous chemicals that counterfeiters work with blew up and his father was killed. So he is left alone with his mother, who vanishes without a trace when he is 11 and no one ever knows what happens to her. Um, until book three of the Corbin series. However, um, he goes out, he, I mean, when the time, when he's 11 years old, he is dependent on his mother's friends for help, to keep him fed, to keep him clothed, sheltered, that kind of thing. But it's a pretty rough existence. He's mostly living on the streets and he becomes a thief. And when he is 15, it was a few years later, he is walking along a street and he hears three uh, boys kind of roughing up a fourth one and calling him dirty Irish. And before Corbin even kind of knows what he's doing, he grabs one of them, puts his knife to his throat and says, stop, just stop. And he sends them off on their way. But they get the first, there's a huge fight. And so 
young pet Doyle, who he's basically rescued from being beat up, says, you've got a big cut on your forehead, you know, come with me, my mom will fix us up. And the Doyle family ends up taking Michael in, partly because Pat Doyle says to his mother, look, I'd be dead if it wasn't for Michael Coravin. So, you, you know, and, 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 and so, so he, be, you know, he becomes known as Mickey Coravin and he, um, they, they're his family for several years. And Michael Coravin and Pat uh, take jobs uh, as, as dock workers and they work together as a team. They're always hired as a team together. They become very tight. Uh, Michael Corvin becomes a bare knuckles boxer in Whitechapel because um, a lot of times the, the men who are running these illegal bare knuckles boxing halls would come to the docks looking for talent. I mean, big brawny kids who were in need of money and had quick hands and who were strong. And so anyway, this guy O'Hagan comes and finds Michael Corvin and says, Hey, do you want to box for me? I'll give you a lot, you know, I'll give you, you know, a pound a week kind of thing. And this is like more money than Corvin is making um, at all. And so, and he realizes, you know, I could do this. And I could help the Doyles out because the Doyles are, you know, they're, his ma runs a shop, but you know, they, they're kind of hand to mouth sort of thing. And um, so he becomes a bare knuckles boxer and he's really good at it. And then and so good, in fact, that one night O'Hagan comes to him and says, you need to throw a match. And Corvin says, 18-year-old kid, he's like, I don't want to throw a match. I got a great streak going. He's like, yeah, I know. I'm not making any money. And you know what he'll bet against your quick hands. You need to throw a match. And Corvin gets in the ring and he intends to do it. And then he doesn't. And he pounds the guy. And poor Devlin ends up on the floor. And O'Hagan grabs Corvin and throws him out on the street and says, never come back. And the next day, the police come and raid the place, and he assumes that Corvin has ratted him out. And he he puts out a message and says, "I um, I'm going to kill kill Corvin if I find him." And so Madwell comes to the docks that afternoon, hands him a bag of money, a little bag of money, not you know whatever she could spare, um, a sack of clothes and some food, and says, "Run, get out of here." Um, I know you're I know you didn't do this. I know you didn't rat him out, but but right now he thinks you did just get out of here or you you know you're gonna be dead. So he 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 runs. He crosses that he crosses the literal and figurative river. He runs across the Thames and to Lambeth, which is south, and he becomes an inspector. He becomes uh, a constable, a uniformed constable walking a beat. And that is the beginning of his police career. So he makes a huge change. But in the meantime, he ran off and he left behind this family. And he eventually can come back to them safely because O'Hagan realizes that he didn't get ratted out and, you know, this kind of thing. Um, but one of the, you know, he left behind Pat, who ends up dying, uh, Ma Doyle, who he loves very much, and the twins, Elsie and Colin, who, when Under a Veiled Moon opens, are 19. And Corvin walks in one day, you know, he hasn't seen them in a month. He feels really guilty about it because, I mean, they are his family. They are his only family. Um, but he walks in and Elsie and Colin are fighting. And they don't usually fight. They're twins. They get along well. But Colin is just, he's stubborn and obstreperous and just sort of awful and storms out. And you know, Corvin's like, what's up with him? And uh, little does he know, though, that Colin's in trouble. And he needs to, he's going to need to step up and see if he can help him out. Hmm. When we Americans think of the British police, our thoughts go to Scotland Yard. Can you say something about why was Inspector, why is Inspector Corvin transferred to Wapping? What, what's the difference? 
So uh, Wapping River Police was actually the first organized police force in Britain. It was begun in 1798, and it was because all of these uh, imp- all these ships bringing imports from across, you know, from Europe and, and so on, and exports and things like that, these ships would get moored in the Thames. There were no closed dock systems, and they would get moored in the Thames, and thieves would come and basically just pillage at night. And so the, I think that they accumulated um, theft was something like half a million pounds per year from all these different ships, which of course is not a tenable situation. So they closed off the docks, they create the river police um, to try and monitor and keep the crime from happening. And um, it's much later, it's actually in the 1840s that Scotland Yard is created the plain closed division of the Metropolitan Police. And that's Inspector Corvin's usual spot. He, he is a inspector at the yard. He's a chief inspector. But um, unfortunately, his old superintendent, uh, Superintendent Blair um, from Wapping, um, he was covering up some murders and he was he was being naughty. He was doing some bad things. And so he was fired. And and that happens during Down a Dark River, the first book. And so um, the director, Director Vinson at the yard says, I'm going to put Michael Corvin in charge of whopping temporarily. So Corvin is temporarily the acting superintendent um, for this. And he's been there for, I don't know, a couple months when the Princess Alice disaster happens. Right. So the British hatred of the Irish seems so familiar today when there are people all over the world who fear others from different nations, who speak different languages, different values. Can you address what was going on in Britain in 1878? Well, it's a really complicated picture, but the, the broad strokes are that in the 18, so in 1800, um, when Ireland joined England, Scotland, and Wales. The Irish Parliament was dissolved in Ireland. And so all of the Irish members of Parliament had to come to London in order to serve. So unfortunately, you know, the Irish were always a minority. And so there was a real difficulty in getting anything done as far as advocating for the Irish. And then when the potato famine happened, there were, I think it was 1845, 46, 48, or 47, 48, something like that. There were three years where the potato the potato blight, um, I mean, it, it eliminated a huge, you know, food store. And, and all of these Irish people started flooding out of Ireland. I mean, they were starving. And the British would not change, like, things like corn laws or, or send supplies or support to the Irish to help them out. So the Irish fled over to Liverpool, which is on the Western part of England. And some of them left in what were eventually called coffin ships. Uh, They emigrated to America and to Canada, but I think 25 to 40% of them died on those voyages. I mean, which is horrifying. The other people settled in Liverpool along the Mercy River. And some of them, when it got really overcrowded and there was no work to be had there, then they all came down to London. But, you know, the, you know, for, for, for some people, they, it, it was kind of, 
I mean, it's horrible to think about. I mean, these people were desperate and they were starving and they were trying to find work and they were trying to, trying just to live and raise their families. And they, they, they really ran up a lot against a lot of anti-Irish feeling the you know, the feeling of, you know, you people are taking our jobs and our, you know, and you're invading our cities and, you know, I mean, all this kind of thing. And yeah. And it was, you know, it was really, um, you know, I, I discovered some of the anti-Irish prejudice, like, you know, like, and like the, the advertisements for, you know, we need workers, but, you know, N-I-N-A, no Irish need apply was, you know, emblazoned along the top of the advertisement. And, and I found some of this uh, when I was reading down a dark river and, you know, researching for it. And then I started thinking, I need to look more into this. And as I started delving, I came across some things that, I mean, I was genuinely shocked and surprised by, uh, for example, um, there was a letter that Benjamin Disraeli, the prime minister wrote, to the London Times. So he wrote it under a pseudonym, but it, you know, it, it was him. And in the, and, and he, he became prime minister twice in the sort of seventies and eighties. And he was one of Queen Victoria's favorites. He, uh, she loved him. She didn't like Gladstone, but she loved Israeli. And part of his letter reads, the Irish hate our order, our civilization, our enterprising industry, our pure religion, this wild, reckless, indolent, uncertain, and superstitious race have no sympathy with the English character. And I came across it, I thought, oh my gosh, like this is what the future prime minister is saying about the Irish. And this is before the potato famine even had, I mean, before, you know, that kind of ratcheted the whole thing up. I, it was really astonishing. So I really, I wanted to deal with that in this book. Mm. Uh, so prescient. Several other accidents took place around the time of the 1878 boat disaster. Did the British learn and adapt new practices following the, the ships, the trains, the mines? What happened? It, that is a great question because the response was different each time. Um, with respect to the railways, because the, there were so many different railway companies and they were all joint stock companies, they each had their own rules about safety regulations. Some of them adopted interlocking brakes. Some of them didn't. So, for example, some of them, um, the interlocking brakes means that when you put a brake on, all of the cars have a brake. Um other ones, the first five cars had brakes and then everybody else just smashed in. So, but parliament was very reluctant to step in and say, okay, everybody's got to do X or Y because they felt that that would bring some of the liability onto them and take it away from the railway company. So they were very reluctant to, you know, put any laws out there. Now the, the, the cult, the mines, um, they were, separately owned, but there were more laws surrounding their safety that were more sort of generally adopted. It's an old industry. I mean, coal mining had been around for a long time. And the nautical laws, they they had been sort of um, a, a weird sort of ad hoc mixture of nautical laws and some customs. So for example, uh, on the Thames, it, it, nautical law, international nautical law generally, says that everyone has to pass port to port. So left-hand side of the ship to left-hand side of the ship um, as they're going forward. But uh, because the Thames is tidal, 
And twice a day, the, the direction of the river changes. I mean, and it goes up, it goes ebb and flow, ebb and flow. And the water level changes um, up to 24 feet in some places. So during an ebb current, when the water is rushing out toward the North Sea, um, you've actually got like four knots of speed that are, are kind of coming down the middle of that river. So a small boat doesn't want to battle upstream. So what they would do is they would, what they would call punch the tide. They would hug the shore where the tide wasn't so strong so that they wouldn't have to burn quite so much coal and it wouldn't be so hard for them to get upstream, that kind of thing. So the Princess Alice is hugging, you know, is hugging the river, the riverbank. And it was also because the Bywell Castle, which was huge, 900 ton coal carrier, uh, needed more depth. So, so they need that, you know, giving them, you know, giving them the middle of the Thames where they've got more room to maneuver and more depth is good for them. But that means that they're passing stern to stern. Uh, so do oh. you see what I'm saying? So, 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 yep. I mean, conventions and nautical law weren't quite matching up. Um, and mm. also there was no kind of central organization for the rules governing, you know, governing the traffic on the Thames. It was kind of divided between a few different groups um, and organizations. So it was, so after the Princess Alice, there was um, a much more energetic attempt to codify nautical law and um, hold people accountable when they didn't keep to it and trying to get okay. away from sort of like the, well, this is how we're used to doing it, even if it isn't quite like you know, under the law. They, they got a little bit more strict and a little more um, uh, determined about their efforts to police and, and regulate it. Uh, so there's just a little bit of romance mm-hmm. in the book. And mm-hmm. I, I'm dying to know what's going on with Michael Coravin and his love the love of his life, Belinda Gale. Belinda, yes. Uh, so we meet Belinda Gale in Down a Dark River. And the way that Corvin and Belinda met is that Belinda, was she holds a soiree every week. And she invites, you know, all different kinds of people. Um, and, you know, some of them are, you know, friends. Some of them are famous. And uh, one of them, uh, Annie Besant, was sort of notorious. She wrote a book actually about birth control and it was published. She was put in jail um, for publishing this this work. Uh, anyway, and there were a lot of people protesting her. So Annie Besant comes one week and then the following week, someone throws a brick through Belinda's window, comes in, trashes her office and her, you know, trashes her study and throws books around and makes a big mess. And because she is wealthy and in Mayfair, uh, Scotland Yard sends somebody in that happens to be Michael Corvin. So that's how they meet. And he walks Wait into a second. Her- Hold on. Yeah. Hold on. This was from a book previous, uh, before the Michael Corvin series, right? No, no, no. That's, that's Down a Dark River. That was the first down, oh, the first one. That yeah. was, okay. Okay. Yeah. I forgot that part. Yes. So Phew. that's, yeah. That Well, it happens before Down a Dark River begins, but he he reports, you know, he, he shares that with his readers, you know, when that happens. Okay. So okay. Um, anyway, so, so, yeah, so he walks into the study and he said, you know, oh, is this your husband's study? You know, is your husband at home? And she says, I do not have a husband and this is my study. And this is where I write books and plays. And she's the daughter of a former um, uh, uh, barrister. And he, being very clever, has written 
you know, he, he was, he's a, he's sort of an advocate for her. Uh, she's, his, she is, um, he had two daughters. One of them um, lives up in Edinburgh and Belinda lives in London. And she, um, he creates a trust and he takes his money, divides it between the two daughters and Belinda lives in Mayfair and she is self-sufficient. And she also earns her living by her pen. Um, she, like many of the other Victorian women novelists, uh, was actually quite successful and made, made you know, good money selling her books. So uh, anyway, so, so, so she is, she's, she's one of my favorite characters because, I mean, she's not perfect, but she, she has the emotional quotient. She has the EQ that kind of pairs up with Corbin's street smarts. So she offers him certain kinds of insights that he doesn't always take right away, but then he kind of understands like that she's right. You know, he kind of poo-poos them at first and says, oh, wait, no, you know what? Actually, you're right. And he's gotten used to taking her advice. The problem is that Belinda's mother was mentally ill, not when they married, but later, and was mentally ill for 12 years. And was it was very traumatizing for Belinda, her sister, and her father. And her father on his deathbed basically said to Belinda, you need to promise me that you will not marry in haste. You will mm. take, you know, four or five years before, you know, you, know we, you will take time to know someone very well and make sure that they are solid before you marry them. And the trust I'm creating is going to be in your name and it cannot be broken and your husband cannot get his hands on it. So mm. he was very protective of his daughters. And so, but, but being that Belinda made this promise, she and Corvin have only been together for a couple, you know, a few years. And so she, they are lovers and they are intimate in all kinds of, I mean, you know, physically intimate, but also just emotionally intimate. He tells her things he doesn't tell anyone else. You know, they, they are close and, um, but she will not marry him. Not yet. So, Karen, when am I going to get my next hit of Michael Corbin? <laughs> uh, well, I'm working on book number three. Uh, I don't know whether I don't know whether um, my well, we're going to see if my publisher likes it, likes the idea, and I hope he does. And so, uh, the, this next one is so much fun because I found, you know, I, I think that. Um, a lot of writers tell me they have a similar experience where they stumble across a mention of something and there's a kind of surprise. And I think the emotion and the intellect together that are both part of surprise generates a certain kind of energy and makes us want to write a book about it. For example, when I came across the mention of the Princess Alice disaster, um, I was about halfway through researching Down the Dark River and I came across a, a line that says something like, you know, the... The worst, you know, after the worst maritime disaster um, to ever occur in the Thames and then, then blah, blah, blah. And I was like, wait, wait, wait what was that? <laughs> and I mm. and I Googled, you know, maritime disaster. And of course, the you know, Titanic and Lusitania, all this other stuff comes up. And then I wrote, I edited in Thames, Princess Alice came up and I thought, oh, this is really interesting. So that's how I found Under the Veiled Moon. But the, for this next one, I found it when I was traveling in London. My daughter was actually at Oxford for a semester, and I went over to visit her afterwards. Um, and we went to one of our last days in London together. We went to the Great Scotland Yard Hotel, which occupies what used to be 
the big cobbled yard behind Fort Whitehall Place, which was actually the real name of the address of the division. And this big, wonderful old, big, wonderful hotel is kind of done in the Victorian style, uh, got a little bit of steampunk, and it has a lot of cases in the lobby with memorabilia from Scotland Yard, which is very cool. It's got like, you know, truncheons and hats and mugshots and all this stuff. Anyway, in that hotel is a bar called the 40 Elephants. And I was very curious about the name. I assumed it being Victorian, it would have something to do with Victoria's expansion of her empire into places where there were elephants like India and Africa. But no, it's actually taken from the neighborhood Elephant and Castle which is in Lambeth, and it was a thieving district. It was known for thievery. And the Elephant Castle Inn was this place where the unwary traveler, you know, falling asleep in front of the fire would wake up the next day with, you know, nothing in his pockets, his suitcase gone, his coat gone, I mean, whatever. And the 40 elephants were actually the women's division of the thieves. And they were be, they began in the 1870s, and they were active all the way up through the 1920s. I mean, Scotland Yard tried to shut them down for years, and it didn't work. They were very canny. They were well-organized, um, very kind of organized like a mafia, like with different cells that didn't know each other, that kind of thing. And I thought this would be a great core of a story. Um, I think that they're going to be wonderful adversaries for Coravan. So that's what I'm writing right now. Oof. Sounds wonderful. Hey, thank you so much for joining me again. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I'll look forward to the next one. Thank you so much, Glee. appreciate it. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to author Karen Oden about the second novel in her Inspector Coravin historical mystery series, Under a Veiled Moon. Hope you have something juicy to read today and every day. Happy reading.